Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders share and discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Susan Scott. Susan Scott, the best-selling author and leadership development architect who enables top executives to engage in vibrant dialogue with one another, their employees, and with their customers. As CEO of Fierce Conversation, Susan sets the company's strategic vision and creates the culture through her ongoing commitment to ensure that employees are engaged, communication is candid, and the learning is continuous. Her book, Fierce Leadership, a bold alternative to the worst, quote-unquote, best practices of business today, was published in 2009 and was recently re-released with updated content incorporating more data and technology that was developed through her experience in the industry over the last 15 years. Welcome, Susan. Thank you very much, Bill. Great to be here. Say, would you fill in a detail or two from the introduction and give us more insight into your personal life today? Personal life, all right. Well, I live in Seattle, Washington, and I have a treehouse on an island off the coast of Washington. I'm a card-carrying introvert, so I spend as much time on the island as I can. Um, I love what I do. I have three dogs. I have two daughters and four grandchildren. Does that help? It sure does. Who was an early role model or influential person growing up that impacted your personal philosophy or outlook? My grandmother on my mother's side. She was the first woman to start the tuxedo rental business and expanded across the south in Tennessee and into Georgia. And she was full of life and very positive. She laughed often and easily, and she told it like it was. She was a very creative, amazing woman. And what's the factor that helped you start the business that you run today, Fierce? Well, I have been running groups of CEOs here in Seattle for 13 years, and I had two groups. Each group had about 16 non-competing CEOs in it, and I would meet with each one of them once a month for about two hours, and then each group would spend one day together every month to advise one another on their most pressing issues. And I'd been doing that for quite some time when I happened to read Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, in which a character is sitting in a bar and someone asks him, how did you go bankrupt? And he responds, gradually and then suddenly. And I had an epiphany. And my epiphany was that our companies and our careers and our relationships and our lives succeed or fail gradually then suddenly one conversation at a time. Because when I looked back over my well over 10,000 hours of conversations with CEOs and their top executives, it became so clear that what gets talked about within a company, how it gets talked about, and who is invited to the conversation determines what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. And Sadly, most people will tell you that a lot of their meetings and conversations are pretty pointless. You know, they're like a thousand pinballs bouncing off of a whole bunch of little fenders running along innumerable tracks, and everybody ends up with confused priorities, lack of clarity about who's going to do what by when, and failed stalled strategies. And so, you know, one of the executives that I was talking with recently said, most of my meetings are an absolute waste of time and money and people because we all have better things to do than to go to yet another meeting that doesn't surface and tackle the most important issues on our plate 
and we're not candid about it, and we don't have a structure that allows us to get to the heart of the issue, and everybody's fighting for airtime, and nobody's really listening to anybody else, and I'm just, you know, I, I, when I look at my day and I see all these meetings, I sort of despair, and it makes me think of Annie Dillard's quote. She said, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And most leaders are spending their days in meeting after meeting after meeting, conversation after conversation after conversation. And most of those meetings and conversations are not accomplishing what we would all hope they would. So where does someone start? A lot of people suddenly gasped as you were describing this and they're listening. <laughs> and they said, oh, my gosh, she's nailed my day. And, and if someone's relating to this, how do they start to pull themselves out of this morass with momentum? Well, it's, you know, it's a skill. It's, it's, so, for example, I, I recently was asked to give a keynote to an enormous Fortune 100 company. And before I spoke, the CEO, there was a video of the CEO making the case for what he called straight listening and straight talk and how very important it was for the company to, so that they could accomplish what they need to accomplish. And then I gave my keynote, and I talked about why this is important, and I gave some tips on how, but I'm here to tell you that that's not enough. People are scared. People are understandably frightened to disclose what they're really thinking and feeling. And they don't necessarily want to go for the biggest and baddest and toughest, most complicated issue on the plate because they, they're exhausted and they don't really think they have it in them. And so we just, they end up just sort of, I don't know, water skiing through their, their conversations rather than putting on a scuba tank and, and going deeper. So it is a skill. Nobody taught me how to have conversations that were really powerful and productive and meaningful when I was growing up. And when I think back to many of them that I had, I think, wow, if only I knew what I know now. So people come up to us to learn how, and it is a skill, and it's a, it's a strategy for getting things done. So I start by reading Fierce Conversations. That's the book that was just re-released uh, with um, new information fleshed out because we've all learned a lot since I wrote the first version. But read Fierce Conversations. And then go to our website and check with us to see if a training for you and your, your leaders or your, your employees within a company uh, might be useful for you. We love to work with small and medium-sized companies because we can make a huge difference uh, in a small company. So Fierce Conversations helps people understand the why it's important. And does, uh, how do you contrast that with Fierce Leadership? Does that tell you more about the skill building and the how it's done? No, both both are about skill building. Fierce Leadership is the is the book that if somebody's going to read one book, they should read that one. That's the first book because that is why it's important and how it's full of how to have those conversations. Fierce Leadership is focused on what I feel are the worst so-called best practices of business today and suggests an alternative. So it's a companion book that goes into a deeper dive regarding the, all of the principles and practices of fierce conversations. So in the principle where you talk about coming out from behind yourself to make the conversation real, how do people start 
in order to make the conversation real. You have to decide whether or not you really care about the issue that's on the table. If you don't care, uh, then you're not necessarily going to come out from behind yourself and be real. If you're in a culture where you've learned that if you disclose what you're really thinking and feeling, you might be made available to industry or you might be punished or criticized, then you're probably going to keep your mouth shut. So I would hope that you are in a culture where candid candor is valued. And let me just go back to the first principle, which is master the courage to interrogate reality. This is incredibly important for everybody in an organization to get good at because reality has a habit of changing, and no plan will survive its collision with reality. But the thing is, no one person, including the CEO, owns the entire reality about what's going on in a company. No one owns the entire truth about what's happening within a company. Everybody owns a piece of it. And so when there's a, an important decision to be made or a strategy to be designed, a problem to be solved, an opportunity to be examined, then you really need to think about whose perspective would be very, very important to understand before the decision is made and bring those people together. And we have an approach, and it's clearly outlined in, in both of the books, we have an approach that the person who's holding the meeting fills out a form before everybody comes together for the meeting. And it's the issue is, it is significant because here is the background, what we've done so far, here is what we are have been trying to do, here's what's working, here's what's not working, here's what is at stake for us, here are the options I'm considering, and if I had to make a, a decision today without anybody's input, this is what I would decide for these reasons. Now, opening it up to everybody to say, what am I missing from where you're sitting? What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? What are you seeing that's different than what I'm seeing? Um, because a leader, and this is an important principle at Fierce. A leader's job is not to be right. A leader's job is to get it right for the company and everybody in the company. And you cannot do that unless you interrogate multiple competing realities around the important topics in your company. So if I'm the leader, I would want to start by changing the way I'm holding my meetings. And I would want to be sure that I meant my invitation when I when I would say, please Challenge my thinking. Tell me what I'm missing. Tell me what, where you see things differently. As soon as somebody contradicts me, I need to say thank you, say more about that, instead of yes, I hear you, but, where I'm just shooting them down and making it clear that I wasn't really asking. So that's one of the biggest shifts that anybody can make. And it doesn't matter whether you're a leader, an executive, or the, the person who's sitting in a support role. You can always say in any conversation, I know the goal is to get this right for all of us. I have a perspective that might be useful. May I share it? And then share it because nobody is going to say, no, you can't. I'm not interested. So, you know, there's an easy and graceful way to put your perspective on the table, even if it contradicts that of the leaders of the organization. And I can imagine that working in almost any culture where you introduce it with that preface. Can you talk about an actual example where there was a leader who was interested in adopting these but didn't have the skills? 
And what were some of the steps that the leader he or she took? And what were some of the observable changes that took place over the weeks and months that it took to adopt this? Well, I, I sort of don't even know where to begin because what happens for, for most – see, most people don't know how to do this. Most people aren't even aware that they're shutting people down. They, they don't intend to shut people down. They say, I have an open-door policy, and I would really like for you to tell me what you're really thinking. But then when people – do they the leader goes back to building his or her own case stronger so part of it is an awareness they become aware and um, I have gosh I've talked with so many leaders and I don't want to pick one out who said I didn't realize I was shutting people down I thought I was creating an invitation for candor and I didn't realize that by the way I respond to someone I'm assuring that nobody else is going to share anything. So part of it is an awareness. And then they just begin practicing. You know, but but usually it involves that they go through training. They the whole in our training nobody does any role play. Nobody pretends to be someone other than who they are. They they are themselves. And when we're practicing this particular approach to a meeting, we're using a real issue that exists for the company that has importance to it and we're we're having the meeting using the format that is we teach in Pierce and people people say I cannot believe how powerful this meeting was and then they just start trying it back at the ranch so to speak and sometimes they make mistakes and that's okay we're all human we might not always say exactly the right things all the time but people just get better at it over time and then what happens is the culture shifts People become much more engaged. People really want to lean forward and be a part of the helping the decision makers get it right for everybody. People start showing up. People who don't usually say anything start saying something. People who tend to take most of the airtime learn to say less and give time for other people to speak up. So that you really do hear from all of the the elements in the company that pertain to the issue on the table. And it's just a matter of practice. And you get better at it over and over and over and over. And that's just one. You know, I mean, we, we teach people how to have these great meetings, but we also teach them how to have great one-to-one conversations with one another. We teach people how to give feedback. We teach people how to confront when feedback has failed. We teach people how to delegate. We teach people what accountability really is and how to raise the bar on accountability without talking about it. So you said something earlier. I'd like to go back to, Susan. You said that you don't use role-playing when you train people to do things, but you might have them imagine being in different situations, even as themselves, in order to simulate. How do you get people to practice in a safe environment where the stakes are lower than when they're being in a live environment and need to use the skills that they've developed? Well, quite often we are doing a pilot within a company and its own intact team that is responsible for delivering some pretty important goals to the company. So this is the actual team, the leader of that team and the members of that team. And so they are putting a very real issue on the table and what keeps it sort of safe, if I can use that word, I I don't really love that word, but I understand it, is that the facilitator has already laid out why this is why this model it works the way it does, 
why the different elements of it are so important and made very clear the flow of the meeting and is there to help guide the meeting in case the leader or anybody else tends to derail or behave in the wrong ways. So you've got somebody who's there as your guide to link arms with you and make sure that you do have this conversation, particularly one, and we always pick one that's really, really important where there is controversy and there people do feel like they're risking something if they share what they really are thinking and feeling. We, we go right straight for those issues because we want the client to have gotten tremendous benefit from the training and actually make progress on an issue that is of great importance to them. And you would be surprised how brave people are in that setting and how they step into that conversation and how they really do disclose what they're thinking because they they get why it's important. They want the company to be successful. They've been wanting to share their viewpoint for a long time and maybe haven't, or at least not fully. And here's the here's the time and place. And so they do. They're just, you know, people always amaze me at how brave, courageous, and, and skillful they can be very quickly given the right tools and understanding what's at stake to gain or lose if they don't. Now, I'm imagining that there might be managers who feel personally threatened by challenges to their ideas. What part of the way that you structure and lay out the ground rules makes managers more open to hearing that type of criticism from people on their team, especially engaged in an important project that your your facilitator might be embedded in? I believe, and you know, that's a great question, and I think that what comes before they actually try that meeting on for size is the discussion about what is your role as a manager. It is not to have all the answers. It is not to create the plan all by yourself in your office or on on the weekend burning the midnight oil. Your role is to get it right for your team, for your division, for your company. And to do that, you've you've got to learn from other people. The answers are almost always in the room, and the people around you have those answers. And so managers begin to understand, you know, I've got, I'm surrounded by very capable people who who come in to this company every day wanting to make a contribution, wanting to do well, wanting to be perceived as a valuable employee. And if I as a manager am always just dictating to them what they should do, and sharing the brilliance of my own thinking with them, there's not much room for them to shine. Plus, I am not always going to get it right. I'm going to make some lousy decisions from time to time. And, you know, I would prefer not to do that. You know, I myself have been influenced so many times. I remember way back in the early days that we were starting out and uh, I felt that we should have our own trainers always go and deliver training to our clients around the world. And uh, one of our employees kept saying, this is not going to work. And finally, he just came and said, I don't think you really understand that our clients simply are not going to want to pay to bring one of our facilitators in from all over the world when they can train their own. And I totally got it. I mean, he was absolutely right, which is why we're now all over the world. Because, and, and think what a nightmare it would have been for us to be trying to manage the stable of thousands of facilitators all over the world. It would have been horrible. You learn the very first time, in, in a training, the very first time everybody goes through that particular 
meeting approach, they are usually pretty blown away by what came up in that meeting, what was learned in that meeting, ideas that no one person would have had that mm. they they think, wow, you know, why why would I want to go back to that lonely role of, of coming up with all the ideas myself when I've got a group of people who came up with some amazing stuff in a very short amount of time, given the right invitation. So the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the doing. And so there's, in our training, there's a lot of doing, a lot of practicing, a lot of debriefing, and, and everybody just gets it. It's interesting because I imagine that going through one of these experiences completely shifts what people realize that a meeting can be when it's run with good ground rules and good facilitation rather than just a, a boring going around the table saying, all right, so what problems do you have and people sharing ideas about them. But to really right. open it up so that people's thinking is welcome, people's perspectives are welcome, really does something very, very different. It does, and I'll tell you how these meetings end, which is one of my favorite things. Um, after every, after you've heard from everybody, and you make sure you have heard from everybody, um, then the, whoever's running the meeting will say, now I want you to write down on a piece of paper, given what we've all just explored together, if you were to give me your best advice, what would you advise me? And I just want one or two sentences, no talking. And everybody does that. And then they go, then they go around and everybody shares their one or two sentences of what they would do. And what's cool is that people have, people change. You can see that somebody shifted from where they were in the beginning of the meeting to where they are now. Um, that people have been influenced by one another. And the leader collects those and has a fantastic, uh, succinct uh, list of things to consider with everybody's names on them so that he or she can go back to those individuals to discuss them in depth. And the thing is, when, when everybody knows, and you tell them at the beginning, before we, before we conclude, I'm going to ask each one of you to give me your best advice. So just know that that will be coming. When you do that, nobody's going to be checking out, including in virtual meetings. You know, nobody's going to be putting another load of laundry in or just playing solitaire and not paying attention when they know that they're going to need to share their best advice at the end. It's fairly fast-paced. It's structured, but not so structured that you feel like you're tied up. There's enough freedom for people to really be themselves, but it's, there's not a lot of time wasted, and you always end up with more and better ideas than any one person would have had going in, including whoever the decision-maker is. And what I also like about that structure is that it accommodates people who aren't used to speaking up a lot in meetings because everyone's going to get a turn at the end. And Well, and everybody's going to be required to speak before the end because if you haven't heard from somebody in the meeting, you call on them. You know, you might say, hey, Bill, we haven't heard, you know, any of your ideas yet. What are, what are your thoughts about this? And if, if Bill says, I'm picking on you, Bill, if Bill says, I don't know, then you would say, well, what would it be if you did know? Or if Bill says, I don't have anything to add because Stacy pretty much said what I would say, then you would say, what would you add if you did have something to add? And you say it in the nicest way, but you, you teach people 
how to behave in these meetings, and nobody gets to come to these meetings and hide out and shrink their subatomic particles and vanish off the radar screen. They're invited to the meeting because their perspective is important, and they're, they are they, they quickly learn you don't come to one of these meetings not prepared to share your perspective. So it's, you know, I mean, we get what we tolerate, and we've got people in meetings who talk too much, and we have people in meetings who talk too little or not at all. And then we have a, a, a loosey-goosey structure where we end up with uh, not a lot of clarity, you know, stalled strategies. And meetings that most people would say that was a waste of time. That's one of the one of the issues that we tackle. There are a number that we tackle, but that's one of the key ones that we we solve for people. There are difficult conversations in every facet of our lives, and one of the issues we face now is the difficulty of having conversations with people who have different ideas as to the way that the country should work, i.e., the politics, and it's difficult to have conversations when people don't have a shared agenda or vision. What's your perspective on this, the, the divide we're having, where we're not even having, I would venture to say in many cases, bad conversations, <laughs> never mind the authentic conversations that are needed in order for us to bring ideas together? What's your overall perspective and what would you offer as advice to someone who might be listening or has the ear of someone in government who really does care about bringing people together and finding a way to have these authentic conversations. I read recently um, a quote by Will Rogers, and he said something like, politicians are very good at saying absolutely nothing, saying it all the time. Nobody's listening, and then everybody disagrees. <laughs> I thought he captured it really, really well. I actually had an opportunity to practice what I would recommend. I have a very important person in my life. I've known her for, gosh, I think 40 years. I respect her a great deal. And she and I recently had a long drive. We shared a long drive together. And I knew that she voted for what I felt was the absolute wrong person and was still a supporter of that individual. And I struggled. Do I bring this up or not? Because I, you know, I just feel so strongly that that was bad. But I decided I needed to practice what I preach. And so I asked her, you know, I, I, I would like to understand. I may never agree with you, but I would like to understand your thinking around why you voted for this person and why you still support this person. And I gave myself a rule that I wasn't going to jump in with yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. <laughs> and instead I was going to say, say more, tell me more, and just ask a whole lot of questions. And I did. It helped me understand where she was coming from, and it did not change my mind the slightest bit. But it did help me understand, which was useful, very useful. And I could see, and she and I, because she knows where, who I voted for and where I come from, we, we discovered that we shared some common goals, that there were things we both cared about that were really, really important to both of us, and that we weren't on diametrically opposite sides of all of the issues, which was extremely comforting for us to see where we could meet and agree and maybe work together to do some things if we were politicians. 
I think that that's clearly, based on results, that approach is not present in our politics today, and people are not necessarily focused on the common good. They're focused on their own agendas and getting reelected and wanting to be right, not getting it right for the country. So mm. I would love to get in and do some work within Congress and the House and any other political office I could get into because there is so much at stake for all of us and we are we are getting absolutely nowhere very slowly at great expense and it's getting scary. So it's it's tough. I, I remember sitting beside a politician at a dinner party one evening and I determined that there was no one there, <laughs> not <laughs> no real person there and. Trying to have a conversation with him was like trying to sculpt air. There, there was no, there's just nothing there. It was just all the talking points over and over and over again. It was very discouraging. So when you don't even feel like you're talking to a human being and you know for darn sure that that person isn't remotely interested in anything you might have to say, you know, no, no wonder the, um, the conversation gets stalled. What I'll take away from the anecdote is how you, decided to go in there and to have that conversation with your friend on the long drive and found that it was possible to have those, finding those points of common ground, that it's a, a valuable thing to do and how contrary it is to normal conversations, especially that are fomented by social media where it's all about the soundbite and getting likes rather than really understanding and thinking, and I'm sure asking lots of questions, and what do you think that would get you? And what else does that mean to you? Those mm -hmm. are the kinds of questions that you suggested really bring out the understanding of the meaning that help us to really understand and have empathy for each other. That's the basis of, of common ground. It totally is. And it's called being a, being a part of the human community. And I think that calling people names and uh, criticizing and, you know, I'm better than that person or just labeling people or groups of people is so counterproductive. I mean, my gosh, that's, I thought we got past that when we were in junior high school. So we're, we're still seeing it within politics and it's disappointing to say the least. When you re-released the, the Fierce book, what was one of the things that surprised you in adding the revisions and updates to the book? Well, there were there were a couple of things that were really important. One was on feedback. The first iteration of the book had a section on how to confront and live to tell about it. But I assumed people knew how to give feedback, and, and actually it isn't true. So there's this huge change, this fabulous sea change in performance management that I wanted to address because people are tired of having these 360 anonymous inputs that just irritate people and upset them, don't really help them. People want to have conversations. They want their bosses, their supervisors, their managers to talk with them, to tell them. You know, if you think I'm doing something uh, great, tell me. If you think I'm doing something that's a problem, tell me, tell me, tell me. I can handle it. Companies are really shifting their performance management to be this sort of ongoing conversation, which is quite wonderful. And not everybody knows how to have even that conversation. So we've got a whole you know, half-day course on feedback, and there's a lot in the new in the new version of Fierce Conversations on how to get feedback. And then secondly, where does technology come in? Because we all have it, we're all glued to it, we all love it, and there are times when it can be a tremendous 
tool, and there are times when it is absolutely the last thing we should be using. So how and when to use your technology. I imagine people listening to those two points and saying to themselves, boy, I'd sure like to let somebody know who I report to that they don't give good feedback. And if I tell them that, that doesn't lead to a productive conversation. How would you suggest that somebody start a conversation about improving feedback in a way that leads to a constructive conversation and building a stronger workplace culture? I'm glad you asked that. I think it's really important to ask for feedback and ask for specific feedback and to go to your, you know, if you're not getting that feedback, to go to the person you report to and say, it's really important to me to 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 be successful here in this role, and I aspire to additional roles down the road, so I need to know what I'm doing well and what I'm not doing so well, and I really don't want to wait for a, an annual or biannual anonymous performance review. I would like for you to stay current with me. If you see something that you really like that I'm doing, I'd love for you to tell me and be specific about it. If there's something I'm doing that you question or that concerns you, boy, that's really important for you to share with me. Is that something you're willing to do? Just ask them for it. And if they, you can always hand them the book. Here's, here's this book and there's a whole section on feedback and I think it's really great, you know, and I, it would benefit all of us. You know, it's something that, it's time has come. We all know that we need it. Let's look at it from the other side where a manager or even a senior manager wants to hold people to a greater level of accountability. And accountability has kind of become a word that people either embrace or recoil from. What's your understanding of accountability and how do we get more of the good kind of accountability where people follow through with what they say they're going to do and they make promises that mean things? There, that's another great question, Bill. There's a whole chapter on that in Fierce Leadership. Going from, let's get away from the practice of holding people accountable to actually holding people able and modeling accountability. So I think accountability has deserved its bad rap. Usually if somebody says, I'm holding you accountable, people interpret that to mean if, so that means that if, if this doesn't go well, my backside will be on the line. You know, heads will roll. And that's not what anybody wants it to mean or should want it to mean. So it doesn't work to say I'm holding you accountable. What is important is to be very clear with people about where, you know, what are their deliverables? What is it that you want from them? And at what level they can make various decisions. People need to know, look, do you, can I make this decision and act on it right now without anybody's input? Or should I make a decision and come to you and tell you what it is before I act? Or should I make this decision with a team of people? Or is this your decision and I just give input? And people usually are not very clear about that. I think the most important thing is for a leader to hold people able to step up to and into responsibilities. And then for a leader to model accountability. There's no way I can hold you to a standard that is higher than the one I'm exhibiting myself. I I don't think it serves us to really use the word accountability because accountability is an attitude. It's a decision that a person makes about how they want to live their life, and you can't mandate it. You have to create an environment in which people choose accountability, and it's where there's clarity of goals and there's clarity of who can do what when, and the leader is being accountable and modeling it. Susan, I have to imagine that you get a tremendous amount of feedback with people talking about how 
the ideas and the techniques and the methods you share in your books, both Fierce Conversations and Fierce Leadership, change their work environments as well as change their lives. What's a piece of feedback that's been particularly meaningful to you that you've received, say, in the last year? Well, I've got a file called, and I call it fan mail, which is probably not a great name for it, but it's where I put, I save emails from people who are telling me how much the practices and principles of Fierce Conversations have meant to them and how they're changing their lives. I had a great, a great one, and I, I won't go into the details because honestly I don't remember all the details, but one of them that I loved was from a father who had just had a conversation with his son about some things that were going on that concerned the father. And before, he might have had the conversation in sort of a scolding, authoritative way. This is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. And I'm going to I'm gonna uh, take away your privileges and blah, blah, blah if you don't change your way. And he, he said, you know, I realized that was me being a jerk. That was me not wanting to understand, not really trying to understand what's going on with my son. So I gave myself a secret rule, one of the secret rules in the the one-to-one conversations is for a very long time, I'm only going to ask questions, just a lot of questions, and not questions like, what the heck were you thinking? <laughs> not that kind of question, just questions to try to really understand what his son was experiencing in his life, what he was doing, what was working, what wasn't working, what was bothering him, making him sad, worrying him, you know, some of the whys behind what what he was doing that concerned the father. And even, you know, the father said, I even, I even asked him, given everything you've just shared with me, what do you see as important for yourself going forward? And the son came up with all the things that the father would have said. That's what you want. I mean, you want people to come up with their own insights about, yeah, I'm paying some prices for some of the things I'm doing, and I didn't really see all those prices before. And if nothing changes, those prices are probably going to continue and maybe even become worse. And that is not at all what I want for myself down the road. So I I want to make some shifts. So that's one of the ones that made me very, very happy. And as a matter of fact, we worked to take fierce conversations into schools. We've trained many, many educators and now are working with them to get the principles and practices to the students because it's the kids that are going to solve other problems that the rest of us won't solve in our lifetimes and they need the tools to do it. And I'm sure you agree that the sooner that these tools and and, um, structures and experiences come into their lives, the better. Yeah, I have to brag. My two granddaughters are just uh, amazing and they have been fierce since they were very, very small. And it's funny, one of them's in college and the other is a senior in high school, and their friends come to them for advice before having a conversation with, with somebody. So, um, you know, it's a way of life. It, it's, it is a skill set, but it's also a mindset. When people hear fierce, they shouldn't back away from it because it really implies just a, a focus and an effectiveness that tears away from the extraneousness that we often swim in. Well put. I mean, it's like when you think of, I have fierce loyalty or fierce regard for someone. You think it's strong, it's powerful, it's robust. And it's just the same thing in a, in a fierce conversation. It's one where we lean in, we, we really listen to one another, we totally disclose what we're thinking, we share the goal of getting it right for the team or the company or the family. Susan, I wonder if you could take 30 seconds to go through the favorite five question round with me. Sure. So number one, 
Who's a person, living or dead, you'd like to have dinner with? I'd like to have dinner with Annie Dillard. She's one of my favorite writers, and she's still alive, so I should probably give her a call. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, what's a book that you found valuable yourself that you'd encourage other listeners to read? It might surprise you to know that I read fiction primarily. hardly ever read nonfiction. But if I were to point to a a book that I really liked, it was um, Walden. Uh, by Thoreau. You know, it just mm. points to my, my value of spending time uh, in nature and spending some time alone. John Muir writes about that, how important it is we shouldn't see trees as just, you know, lumber and just things that forests are places to go to get in touch with our souls. What's one specific tool or technique that you use to stay focused and on track? Clarify before I open my mouth in a meeting or a conversation, what is my goal for this conversation or this meeting? What do I want to accomplish? What's the best advice you ever got? A couple of things. One is uh, from on the business side, run your business uh, as if it were for sale every day, which it isn't, but I mean, I do think that that's a good process. And on the writing side, when I went to one of my friends who was published when I was first starting to write my book and said, what do I do? What do I do? How do I start? How, how do I organize? He said, Sue, just write a shitty first draft. And I thought to myself, I can do that. <laughs> Hallelujah, I can do that. I mean, that just really freed me up to just write. And number five, what's the favorite thing for you to do when you're not helping people in your business? I have friends over for a meal, whether it's in my Seattle home or up on the island. Have friends over and cook and talk and laugh. Maybe if we're on the island, build a campfire. Just be together. And everybody gets to bring their dogs. <laughs> I have three <laughs> of my own. And everybody can bring their dogs. And so we just have this great people-dog love fest, and we eat and cook together. Well, you've been so generous on today's show, on my quest for the best, in sharing so many great ideas, um, talking about and reminding people how life could be like a thousand pinballs with confused priorities and ineffective strategies and execution, or you could put some structure and find some courage to develop the skills and implement some of these systems in order to reach for more meaning, more valuable and um, more authenticity in all of our conversations, especially business where we spend so much of our time. You I could not have summarized it better, Bill. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. I'll stop here. <laughs> <laughs> What's one idea you'd like to leave listeners with, Susan? It's time for you to speak. It's time for you to come out from behind yourself and disclose what you're really thinking and feeling at home, at work, everywhere you are, because what you think and feel matters. And how can people find out more about the Fierce Conversations book and trainings that you offer? Well, they can go to our website, fierceinc.com. They can start with a book, and they can get the book anywhere, you know, from any bookseller, online or standing bookstore. Well, thank you so much.